Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome back to Altitude Accelerator's Tech Uncensored live podcast streamed through LinkedIn. My name is Sam Hussein, and I will be your host today. Today, we're going to talk about what VCs don't tell you and things you have always wanted to ask. So I'm going to right away introduce our guests. We have David Harris Collada from Greensoil PropTech Ventures and Matam Hazanoff from Burstra Ventures. Thank you, gentlemen, Hi, for coming on board. Hey. Pleasure I'm, to start off, I'm going to start off by asking you the first question, that is, you see hundreds and hundreds of pitches every year. And right away, you're going to make a hard pass. And you say it right away in the media, you're going to make a hard pass. But you're not going to, do you tell the company why you made that hard pass? And why don't we start off with you, Dave, and then I'll go to you, Matan. We do as much as possible give entrepreneurs feedback in terms of what we think of why they may not be a fit for us. That's the easier one. It's just a fit issue. There's something about what the business they're in or their business model or the target market that isn't in our, one of our priority areas. That's easy. We'll always give them that feedback and also to whoever referred it to us, because obviously we want people to refer deals to us that are relevant to us where it has to do with quality. That's where it's a little trickier. And really that depends on a number of factors. One is if they took the feedback into account, would we be interested in looking at them again in the future for the next round? The answer to that question is yes, then we will give that feedback because we'd like them to hopefully reflect it. If the answer to that is no, then there's not a lot of upside because it can perhaps be an awkward conversation, but if they seem coachable and open to the feedback, then in my case, I often will give it because I just, I think it's a good practice and it's helpful for them. Oh, that's great. Matan? Yeah, that, that was a great answer. I would say yeah, probably most of that, but they have a slightly different take on feedback in that I think in most cases where like, where clearly not a fit for our mandate to pass and there's not much upside in it. It's not a fit, there's not much help we can provide, not much feedback we can provide that will add value to their process. When it is, for whatever reason, we are not interested in investing in the business because of quality, like Dave has suggested, we tend to shy away from feedback unless we've been involved with the company for a while. If it's like after the first meeting and it's a hard no, we tend to avoid offering feedback. We don't want to start. What I've noticed is that it gets into a discussion of them trying to convince that we're wrong about our perspective. And sometimes it's not because it's something that can change. Like there's a founder's obfuscating information and that's all we say no. Or there, one example happened recently where the founder didn't want to share revenue, like just basic traction on their business. And it was a 10 minute discussion. Why didn't we want to share that information? And it's a hard note for that reason. We just, there's not much you can do with that. And then they emailed us afterwards asking, Hey, why did you guys pass? It was, we don't want to get that discussion. So it depends on the situation. If we're spending at least two years with them, we tend to offer feedback just because if we, if we feel it can actually help in that process. Okay. And what would you say? Like, let's say you do go on to spend two meetings, maybe even three meetings. If you do make a pass, what are the top reasons after you've gone that far that you decide this may not be for us? And why don't I start off with you now, Matan? If we're ready meeting with a couple of times, it generally fits our mandate. So no, it's not going to be because it's not in the right sector, not the right technology, not the right traction. I found really three primary reasons why we must say no. Anytime we feel like the founder's not being realistic and after we provided that feedback, realistic in their projections, realistic in their market size, realistic in the amount of money they need to raise. I mean, this has many elements. 
and they're not accepting our feedback. Not that they're accepting our feedback. Yeah, you're right. We're going to change what we're doing, but they're not even willing to hear our perspective based on years and years of experience and doing this for many years over many, many companies. That to us, they're not coachable. They're not interested in changing how they do things, not even considering it. That's usually a no for us. The other time is if we believe it's not a good fit with something else that we're involved in, like we're somewhat strategic, we're involved with many different partners. Our investors are partners in the startup ecosystem and the software ecosystem worldwide. And if we generally can't find a sponsor for that investment, where we can add value beyond the capital, that's another reason that we may say no. And that's, and then the third reason is if we don't believe it's the right mix of skills, the right experience, whatever it may be. Okay. Dave? Yeah, another good answer. I'll try not to be repetitive. My, my yeah. top three were lack of competitive differentiation. And that's a pretty broad category. Often it includes technology or IP, but not exclusively. It could just be that there's, we've seen a bunch of deals in a similar area. And it's just not different enough to make us want to part with our capital because we don't think that it's going to be able to establish enough of a beachhead in the market and to grow fast enough and to attract the kind of valuation on exit that will get us our return. So that's the big one. We see lots of deal flow and there's certain areas where there's lots of people trying to do something in certain areas. And if that's the case, then they have to be really stand out. And if they don't, and that's one of the one of reasons why we'll pass. The second is management, which Matan touched on. It's, I kind of look at it as management is the reason why we say yes, but it's it often, sometimes it's the reason we say no, but usually we get to other things first, because the thing with management is you'd have to spend a fair bit of time with them to really make an assessment of their quality. So. That's often why we say yes, but not always why we say no, because we'll often find other things we don't like enough to say no before we've actually fully formed our view on management. But if they come across in a way that is really clear that they just don't have the right capabilities to grow a business, then that could be a quick no, but that's not usually the case. And then the third one is valuation and deal structure. We're financial VCs. We have to make high return on our winners to make up for the ones that don't do as well. And, you know, that the only thing we can control is our entry price. We can't control the exit. We do everything we possibly can to deliver great returns on the exit, but we can't control it. So our view is let's sweat the details on what that structure looks like in terms of a preferred structure and downside protections, those kinds of things. And of course, the valuation up until recently, the, we've been in a very long bull market where entrepreneurs had strong some might say unrealistic expectations that's starting to temper as the market has shifted. So our, we said no a lot to high flying folks that thought that 20 times forward recurring revenue multiple made sense. And we never thought it did even when the market was really hot. So that was often a reason that we said no as well, or if they're looking for some kind of unconventional structure that we just can't justify. So unlike Matan, we're, we're a GPLP, we're managing other people's money. We're. We have a fiduciary duty to them and we have to protect their investment through the way we structure our investments. So those things are important to us. And there's certain things we just won't do from a structural standpoint, because the, from a governance perspective, we just can't justify it. Wow. So, I mean, what you're saying is that in general, management is not necessarily the main, the number, like the number one reason as to why you would not invest. In fact, there are multiple other reasons before it come to management. I would assume that you could. No, I, I didn't say that. No, well, I mean, it's down, right? It's the lower. reason we say yes. Okay. Right. So if you ask me, what's the most important ingredient to a successful startup that we would invest in? It's managed hundred percent. Okay. Number one, number two, number three, number four. It's not always the first reason we say no. Your question was, why did we say no? Yes. And what I said was we often get to other things first 
to say no before we fully formed our view on management. Okay, fair enough. If I think for that, yeah, but but that piece on management, I mean, in some sense, every element of the business is a reflection of management, right? So, so Dave is hundred percent correct. You don't need to even to talk about management because if they're in the wrong market, they have the wrong solving the solution that problem that doesn't exist. If they haven't thought through how they're raising money, they haven't raised expectation. All that is a reflection on management. So by the time you ask the question of management, that is in a later stage in the process. But yeah, so so that that's definitely true. What about uh, sole founders? Would you do you consider sole founders, or is that a red flag? Why don't I start with you, Dave? We do. It's not. A, it doesn't disqualify them. But this also goes to the question of stage, though, right? So we're not investing typically pre-seed. We're investing most of our capital in Series A, Series B. And then we have a bucket for seed investments. About 10% of our fund will go in seed investments. So at that stage, they have to have other people on the team. We're not going to be investing in a, a one-person band. So even if they were a sole founder, by the time we're investing, they've formed some kind of a team around them and it's not as critical. But then you're looking at what's the equity participation of the non-founders and have they got skin in the game? It brings a bunch of other questions up, but no, it doesn't, it's not a disqualification for us. Oh, that's okay. And Matan? Yeah, I think conventional wisdom to the extent such a thing exists is that you want at least multiple founders, technical, business person, whatever. In my experience, I haven't seen, maybe I haven't had enough of a, maybe after a hundred investment, I can start seeing that play out. But in my experience, some of the solo founders I've invested in have been the best performers. So I certainly will continue to invest in solo founders, but they bring up the point that at a certain stage, like once they start raising their second or third round, they have to really figure, they have to have like solid people with skin in the game that if they're not the technical person, they need to you know, that's committed and with skin in the game, right? Or someone on the business side, if they're the more technical person. So yeah, that, that's hundred percent true. By a certain stage, they need to figure that out. They need to get a good group of people with the right set of skills if they want to continue to play the fundraising. And, and speaking of that is when you do see a, a company and let's say there are multiple founders, but one of them is the single founder has the vast majority of shares. Does it matter to you how the shares are distributed? That's firstly, secondly. Do you like to see companies or founders that have put their own capital in the game? So their own skin in the game. Is that something that you value? Why don't I start with you, Matan? So I'll start with the last question. Skin in the game is very important. My, my philosophy is if you want somebody to invest money in your business, you have to show, you have to put your own money where your mouth is. The reality is that many people don't have that option. So there's many ways to show that you're committed without actually putting in money if that's not a possibility for you, right? Like if you have a part-time job while you're starting, you have to start up, that better be because you can't eat otherwise. Like you, you have to be, especially at the early stage, but at a certain point, you have to be all in because if you want your investors to be all in with you in terms of their capital and risk it for you, you have to be all in. And that, that usually means for a lot of people, they have to put their own. Like when I started my first, well, not my first business, but my first undid, so to speak, business, when I was already in my mid twenties, I refinance my house, I quit my job. That's how I survive. Right? There's, and once I did that, people started to take me seriously. Right? And if I was the first part of that question. And does it matter how the distribution of shareholding is amongst the founders? Does that play a role in how you value the company or how you look at oh, it? Yeah, I think the important thing is 
that they own a significant portion at the early stages so that with dilution, they still have an interest in seeing everything through difficult times. And I've seen situations where if they don't have enough skin in the game, that has to be corrected at some point. So if either it's going to affect you now or going to affect you later, you have to make sure that they have skin in the game or else why are they doing it? Some people are just great people. They're going to do right by their investors, even if they don't have the financial rewards. But yeah, it's very important. More the totality of the ownership rather than how it's distributed, as long as everyone has an opinion. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So on the second part of your question, but the first part that Matan answered, agree hundred percent. So I have nothing further to add on that other than to reinforce how important it is to have skin of the game. On the other part of the question, it's actually a really fascinating topic. And, I, and having done this for a lot of years, I've seen it play out in a number of different ways. Yeah. So I got a few lessons learned. One of them is if you have three founders, for example, which often you see, and they all have equal ownership and one's the CEO. I actually don't like that. I've learned that's actually not a good formula for success because the CEO is the single biggest predictor of success of a startup. And therefore they need to have the most skin in the game. Then they have to get the most reward and the most incentive if that happens. So I'm a little bit now at this point, I'm not as keen on that. Not that I'd never do it again, but I've learned that's actually, while it seems egalitarian when they started out. It quickly turns into a management and scaling challenge because it's like, well, who's really the CEO? Are you, do you consider yourselves like a partnership or are you really more of an organism, like a hierarchy in terms of a corporate structure? We need to have accountability as investors. We need to know who is actually in charge and who's accountable to whom. And we're measuring that success accordingly in terms of how we compensate them. So that's one thing that I would say. The other thing that, that can complicate situation down the road is if one of them leaves because They've got this large slug of equity and they're no longer running the business. And we call that dead equity, right? When you've got someone that's gone, not running the business, but they own a huge chunk of the company, that's never a good thing. So we're also wary of that. But I think in terms of, and you have to make sure there's enough equity to go around to the folks you're going to attract later, right? Because as you scale the business, you have to bring talent in to do new things and new parts of the business that, that you get more specialized in your scale and you couldn't do, and you were just weren't at that stage when you were founding. And if you've got so much of the company tied up between three or four or more founders, it can be challenging sometimes to have enough for them to be able to give up enough equity to bring in a real high flyer or experienced person to head up sales or product management or whatever it might be. So in my experience, having two or three founders is great. As long as the CEO has the biggest share of the equity and they have a large ESOP in place and they're expecting to be able to use that to attract talent as they grow. Okay. Is it fair to say or not fair to say that when you make investments, and depending on what stage, of course, you're at Series A and Series B, but when you make investments, let's say it's at an early stage, your goal is not to dilute the company so much as to create a disincentive for the founders. Would that be fair to say? Why I start with you, Dave? Sorry, can you rephrase the question? Our goal when we invest is not to dilute the company so much that it becomes a disincentive for the founders. Yeah, absolutely. So there's sort of rules of thumb, right? In terms of when you raise around how much of the company you're typically going to be selling and it's to be higher, it was sort of like a third was the rule of thumb. And then as valuations got higher, it was down to more like 20%, 15, 20%. So it, it depends, but that's the kind of range you're looking at, right? So that the founders are not losing so much of the company that they don't have enough of an incentive to really grow the business. Absolutely. Yeah. And then that's the other thing that's interesting when you're valuing really early stage companies, a single 
most important metric of a pre-revenue company in terms of valuation is not any kind of a business metric because there aren't any. It's how much money you're raising, right? Yeah. It's just math. It's just like, well, are you raising a million bucks? Well, then your valuation is probably going to be 4 million or 3 million or 5 million or whatever, because it's just about how much of the company the new money gets. So if they're looking to raise two or three or four or 5 million, then they're going to have to raise it at a higher value. And if they can't get the market to buy into that, well, then they're going to need to find other ways to finance the company non-dilutive or their own money or, or financing or whatever it might be until they can justify that value or be willing to give up more dilution, which brings the risks that you mentioned in your question. Yeah. Matan, oh, what stage does Verstra come in at? We invest when the company has generated enough traction that they demonstrate some product market fit. And our definition of that for your typical B2B software business is at least a couple hundred thousand dollars in recurring revenues. That at least then we can start to engage customers and what's really going on. So then what, how do you then, that's that, so then becomes really pertinent for you is when you come in, do you, you don't want to dilute them to the extent that it's a disincentive to them either, do you? Yeah. Aside from the risk of the management or owners, founders not having equity, we tend not to look at it that way. We start with a, what we perceive to be a good valuation. And if the company, if let's say it comes out as 5 million pre money and the company wants to raise 5 million, well, that means they're going to get diluted by 50%. And we're actually okay with that. If we believe that there's still enough room here for management be incentivized. Now that's typically not the case. And that goes back to your earlier question regarding why we say no quickly. If a if a founder has unrealistic expectations, it's actually a signal for us that it's not good fit. So if someone with no revenues wants to, for a typical software business, wants to raise $10 million because they have inflated expectation, that time, while we may do that, if we believe the company was worth, worth it, that to the signal that it's not a realistic fit for us because it means they'll get diluted too much or maybe they have an unrealistic idea of what it takes to build a business, 10 million at an early stage. Anyway, so we tend to look at it slightly differently. We're willing to invest whatever money and whatever valuation you think is appropriate. We tend not to look at it as dilution at certain stages or ownership. We're okay to invest $2 million and $100 million valuation. Really, it doesn't matter to us as long as we believe that those numbers are fair. Okay. Good to know. Okay. So how often, how involved do you get with your investments? So do you actually step in and help bring a management perspective, if need be, to prop up the company and get it going? Or is it a hands-off way? Why don't I start with you, Matan? The ideal is to add some value beyond the capital, right? It's much harder to do in practice as a VC with full investments and different your times being pulled in different directions. So at the base, yes, we try to get involved in that value while understanding that we're not operators. We're not there to run their business. So we're not there to, uh, to put our thumb on the scale in any respect whatsoever. However, we're particularly unique in that we're connected to about a thousand software. And part of our process is, can we add value in a very real way to the company to invest in either through direct business relationships, connection, networks, things like that. So we tend to be a bit more strategic, although we can be careful. So yeah, we try to act value, but how it plays out every case is different. Yeah, the identity of it. And Dave? We get pretty involved with our company. So I wouldn't say we get to the point of helping management, like helping manage the company. So uh, I would agree with Matan on that front, but in terms of our model, because we're a vertically focused fund, 
We only invest in technology that's applicable to the real estate sector. And most of our investors are corporates or strategics that invested into our fund. So we use that to help our portfolio companies in very real ways in terms of business development and getting them pilot projects and that kind of thing, but also in terms of product integrations and all kinds of other sort of insights that come from our LP network and beyond. Two of the four partners of Green Soil spent the majority of their careers in the real estate industry. One of our German, Alan Greenberg, still has an active real estate business that he runs. And so we bring that sort of up to the minute experience to our portfolio companies in terms of how to not just get the next sale, but the idea of how are you going to grow your business? What are the trends that are impacting you? How do you hire the right people? How do you price your products? How do you position it versus your competition? All those things are informed by our very deep experience within the real estate industry. So that gives us, I think, a little bit more of a hands-on role. But then there's the stuff that good VCs do. I mean, I've been a VC or an entrepreneur for almost 30 years. So I've been a CFO of a startup. I've raised venture rounds. I've been on boards of directors. I've worked for large strategics in the corporate M&A department and acquired startups. I partnered with startups as a large corporate. So that experience allows me to do things with our entrepreneurs and give them a perspective that I think that your average VC, if there is such a thing, perhaps doesn't do as well. So those are the kinds of things that we think that sets us apart. And I think hopefully allows us to give a little more credibility to the entrepreneur because you know, one of the things that you have that's a dynamic with VCs and entrepreneurs is we don't control them, right? Like we're not taking ownership. We're not taking control positions. We're taking minority positions. So anything that we do with them is all around suasion influence. It's not around command and control. So the relationship that we build is extremely important and credibility is also very important. And I think that having the experience of having done it before is important as part of building that kind of relationship. And then just showing them that you put your money where your mouth is and actually providing real introductions that make an impact. And once they see you doing that, then, you know, it's no balls from there. Okay. Great. How long would you say, like when you first meet a company to then making your decision to invest, what's, what does that timeline look like in general for you? So why don't I start with you, Dave? Go ahead. It varies. I would say that on average, it's probably three months, but it, sometimes it can be a month. Sometimes it can be six. It depends on a couple of things. One is the deal already in flight and has a lead investor and they're looking for a syndicate member. And it's a non-core investment for us, which is usually a seed stage and earlier stage investment. If that's the case, our process can be pretty quick, right? Because there's not that much to due diligence. It's really around management and it's around do we believe in the thesis and the market segment that they're in, which we've probably already established, which is why we're looking at them. And it's a small investment. So that can be fairly quick. That's probably a matter of weeks. If it's a larger investment where we're going to be the lead and we have to build a syndicate and find co-investors, that can take longer, right? So plus we're going to do a lot more extensive due diligence, which can take more in the months timeframe. So is that, if you're not the lead, do you go off of the leads due diligence and you don't do as much or you do none at all, or just you do a little? We always do our own due diligence. I mean, it, the point around non-core was it's an earlier stage company where we're investing a smaller amount. Yeah. It's not about leveraging anyone else's due diligence. We always do our own. The question is how much time does it take to do that due diligence? Right. Right. Ted? We have two stages to our typical investment process. We invest anywhere from half a million to $5 million per deal kind of seed in series A, typically seed in series A stage. There's two, two 
aspects. One is when our team decides, hey, this is green, we want to breed for our investment committee. And then there's a process to bring it to our investment committee and getting that approval. That first stage of the process depends on what's going on. If we have a massive pipeline, we make it take us a month, may take us two months, depends on really what's going on. Depends on the factors, some of which Dave mentioned, like, is it already in play or is there competitive people around? And then the one, one thing that I want to bring to our investment committee, that's about a three-week process where the, ma the majority of our business diligence takes place. So it could take anywhere from four to six weeks, maybe sometimes longer, depending on what's going on. If it's a smaller check, we just started doing a $200,000 checks and less, where we're not the lead investor, where we don't take board seats, and we rely significantly on co-investors or the lead investor to do the diligence and to lead the round to have, meaning the terms and everything, negotiating the terms and all the legal docs associated with that. And in those cases, we can turn around decision in two weeks and find it. And that's really there to get a foothold in the deal that we can't leave for whatever reason, and then deploy significantly more capital up the way. Of all the companies you invested in, like, can you point to what the key successful ingredient was in that company that made it, you know, an out of the park home run? So what was it? Was it the management team? Was it the management team and the product, the way they executed? You know, what can you point to? Why don't I start with you, Matan? I think, especially the last few years have shown me that the market is actually the primary, one of the primary drivers of success. If you're dealing in a big market with a lot of demand for a particular type of solution, that almost solves a lot of problems. Now, of course, once you have that, you need the right team to execute. They need to be agile, need to be that perseverance and grit and all that stuff. But if you have, you're in a bad market or if the market changes, like what we've experienced with downs and everything, it almost, if you're in hospitality, your business is dead. Great <laughs> that with one of our businesses. Now, that isn't, it's not usually the end of a business. If you have the right founders on board, they can pivot and whatever. The market plays such an important role in what you're doing that it almost doesn't matter what underlying what's below the market in terms of the actual business itself. The market dictates so much. So I would say that's part of 50%. Then you have, of course, the team tech and all that. That's just because I have I'm a bit salty from the past couple of years but or companies didn't do as well because we, they're in a particularly bad market. Dave. Yeah, I would agree. I think in, in the view, I, in keeping with your theme of, you know, what VCs don't usually tell you, honestly, right place, right time is probably the biggest driver of the quantum, at least of a big exit, right? It's just like, I can think back to the late nineties when I started into venture and the dot-com era was raging. And like, we sold a company with no revenue for $200 million. And that's because we were in the right space and we were able to create competitive tension amongst a couple of buyers and they were willing to pay a big check. Now, could anyone else have done that? Probably not because they had some really deep tech. So that's the other thing is I think that once you get, if you're selling at the early stage, it's really around how deep is your tech and how unique is it and valuable to someone who's buying it. If you're selling at a later stage, a company that's in the 20, 30, 40, 50 million in revenue and above, then execution is so important. So I was the CFO at Eloqua, one of the first marketing SaaS company is one of the biggest exits in Canadian startup history at almost a billion dollars. And it was a overnight, it was a 12 year overnight success. I mean, it took a long time to build the business to the point where we could go public and then be sold to Oracle. So how did we do that? Well, originally the founder had a vision to do something that no one else had ever done before, which was sell marketing automation software as a service on a monthly subscription basis. No one had ever done that before. Right. But by the time we went public, it was many years of quarter on quarter growth and execution and 
drilling the business plan down and scaling the business and growing hundred percent per year on year, it's hard work. Like that takes execution. Yeah. So it's, it depends on when you're selling in terms of why you get that monster exit. Yeah. I, I want to add to it. It's a great, great story. It's amazing to go through that kind of cycle. We've had, we've invested in companies where they were like two or three years off from the market being ready to adopt that service or the right set of circumstances. And so long as they find the capital to, to make it through to that point, I mean, they can be fine. Like you said, timing so much of it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I love to keep chatting with you gentlemen, but our time is up. I want to thank you both. I really appreciate you coming on. Until next time, have a wonderful weekend. Thank you. Okay. Thanks. It was okay. a pleasure. Thanks, Sam. Okay. Thank Thanks you. for Bye-bye. time. Bye-bye. Tech and Censored, an Altitude Accelerator podcast, does not constitute a recommendation for any organization, product, or service. It's produced and distributed by Bluemax. For more Tech and Censored content, subscribe where you get your podcasts and visit bluemax.io to join us on Discord.